continue with our studies in Romans chapter 7. We don't have a lot of time, so we won't read the chapter. But for those of you in the church, the words should be on the screen shortly. And if you're watching at home, hopefully you have a Bible to hand. Many years ago, the renowned Bible teacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones described Romans chapter 7 as undoubtedly one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. And so, proceeding with some caution, we're going to look at the chapter under the title, Free from the Law. The chapter falls readily into three parts with the first part consisting of verses 1 to 6. And this section deals with our deliverance from the law. Our deliverance from the law. And Paul begins with an illustration from marriage. As long as her husband is alive, a woman is bound to her husband by the law of marriage. She is not free to marry anyone else. But as soon as her husband dies, she is released from her obligation. The sway of the law is ended by the death of her husband. And she is now free to marry someone else. And the spiritual application of this illustration begins in verse 4. So, my brothers... You also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So when a man trusts Christ for salvation, in God's eyes he dies in or with Christ. And at the same time, dies to the law. The law no longer has any hold on him. And because he has died to the law, he can belong to another. For as the authorized version puts it, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here you have this picture of a believer being married to Christ. And the whole purpose of being married to Christ is, in the words of verse 4, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And Paul's point is that you cannot bear fruit for God as long as you are married to the law. And Paul concludes the section by drawing a contrast between what we were like before we died to the law and what we are like after we died to the law. And this brings us to verse 5. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. Now, what does Paul mean by the sinful passions 
aroused by the law. It might be more comprehensible if he had referred to the passions aroused by our sinful nature. How are these sinful passions aroused by the law? And this brings before us a curious, disturbing trait of human nature. We are attracted by the forbidden. I did some googling in preparation for this and refined my searches down to three quotations. Here they are. The first is from the Roman poet Ovid who said, we are ever striving after what is forbidden. And then from the Middle Ages, a quotation from Chaucer, forbid us something of that thing we desire. And then my favorite from Mona Crean. I have no idea who Mona Crean is or was what she did or does, but this is what she said. There are three ways to get something done. Do it yourself, hire someone, or forbid your kids to do it. Now, none of those quotations are found in the Bible, but they confirm a truth that is biblical. Go back to Genesis 2, God's command to Adam and Eve. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we all know, that was the very tree from which Adam and Eve did eat. Such is the nature of sin, the fact that something is forbidden can perversely stimulate us to do exactly the thing that is forbidden. And Paul has personal experience of this, as we will see shortly. And so he can rightly say that at one time, when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies. But when we come to verse 6, there is a complete contrast. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And so these first six verses establish the foundational truth of our deliverance from the law. Then in the next section from verses or verse 7 to verse 13, we have a defense of the law. A defense of the law. Having listened to what Paul has said about the sinful passions aroused by the law, a devout Jew might raise an objection. Or he would have a question. Hold on, Paul, he might say. When you tell us that the law arouses sinful passions, are you saying that the law is somehow to blame 
that it's evil, that it's sin. And Paul anticipates this objection in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. And Paul proceeds to show that if it were not for the law, we would not have a proper knowledge or understanding of sin. So again in verse 7, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. The purpose of the law is to reveal the true nature of sin. And to show the ability of the law to reveal sin, Paul recalls his own experience with the sin of covetousness. At one time in his life, as a Pharisee, as he considered the tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet, he found that that is exactly what he then wanted to do. And so in verse 8, he describes sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, producing in him every kind of covetous desire. Here it is again, the attraction of the forbidden, an example of the sinful passions aroused by the law. You see, the law gives sin the opportunity to strike. Sin depends on there being a law, an ethic, a rule, a commandment, either to do something or not to do something. This is what Paul means in verse 8 when he says, for apart from law, sin is dead. But where there is a commandment, sin will then act on the inherent, instinctive, waywardness of the human heart. Think of it like this. The law says, do not walk on the grass. Sin says, I will walk on the grass if I want to. Back to the Garden of Eden. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. The moment that commandment or prohibition was given was the opportunity for sin to act. And immediately we hear the voice of sin. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, he didn't. Because that's a distortion of what God actually did say. Adam and Eve were free to eat from any tree except one. You will not surely die. There's a denial of the truth of what God had said. The result, Adam and Eve were deceived. They began a process which would eventually lead to physical death. And so in verse 11, Paul says for sin, Here's this phrase again, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, 
through the commandment put me to death. And it is sin which is the cause of this, not the law. And so Paul concludes in verse 12 that rather than the law being sin, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. And then he reiterates in verse 13 the purpose and the function of the law. It is through the law that the utter sinfulness of sin is exposed. So in these first two sections, Paul has described our deliverance from the law and he has argued in defense of the law. Now we come to the final section, verses 14 to 25. And here we have, I suggest, a description of despair under the law. This is the section which is so controversial. Someone has referred to it as the battlefield of the theologians. And in verse 14, Paul draws a distinction between the spiritual nature of the law and his own physical nature. A distinction that is mirrored in his own being. In his own self, there is a tension between the positive desire to do what is good and right and the opposing negative influence of indwelling sin. And in verse 23, he describes this negative influence as another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. And in describing this unending struggle with sin, his language is intensely personal. You can see how often the pronoun I occurs in these verses. So in verse 15, he laments, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. In verse 14, he describes himself as being sold as a slave to sin. In verse 23, as a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. The whole tone of the passage is one of despair. And Paul sums up his plight in the concluding verse, verse 25. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Now these verses present a number of difficulties. Firstly, they, con they appear to contradict what Paul has said earlier in the chapter. How do we reconcile this picture of a slave to sin and a prisoner of the law of sin with what he has said in verses 5 and 6 about dying to what once bound us when once we were controlled by the sinful nature and bore fruit for not now. Secondly, this passage appears to contradict what he has said in chapter 6, 
verse after verse of chapter 6 affirms the complete opposite of what is described in this last section of chapter 7. Verse 2 of chapter 6. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Verse 6 of chapter 6. Our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Verse 18 of chapter 6. You have been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. In verse 22 of chapter 6. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the result is eternal life. And thirdly, these verses in chapter 7 appear to contradict what Paul will say in chapter 8. Looking again at verse 25 of chapter 7, where Paul describes himself as, in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. But when we come to verse 2 of chapter 8, he has been set free from the law of sin. there are many differing views about these verses. Thankfully for me and mercifully for you, we don't have to get embroiled in those debates. But if we step back, there are two general points to note. Firstly, this passage reminds us emphatically of the lingering presence of sin lives. Yes, as Christians we have been released from the law when we died with Christ. We are no longer condemned by the law. Yes, we have been justified in the sight of God. But as long as we remain alive in our earthly bodies, we will continue to face the relentless challenge by our sinful nature. What Paul describes in verse 23 as the law of sin at work within my members. I don't usually quote Jerry Adams when I'm speaking here, but some of you will remember that infamous remark about the IRA. They haven't gone away, you know. Well, you could apply those words to the sinful nature. It hasn't gone away. Every Christian has to fight a daily battle with the problem of indwelling sin, with the sinful nature. Each of us is a walking civil war. And it is this battle with the sinful nature which will occupy Paul's attention in the first half of chapter 8. But the second thing to note about these verses in chapter 7 is that there is virtually no reference to any present or current activity of any of the divine persons. There is no reference anywhere to the Holy Spirit. 
And this, I think, helps us to understand this passage. In these verses, Paul is demonstrating his self-understanding and his self-knowledge in the light of the law and the law alone. What the law does is give him a knowledge of sin and his own inadequacy to meet the standard required by the law. The law reveals to him the sin that still remains in him. He describes himself in verse 16 as a man who agrees that the law is good. In verse 18, who has the desire to do what is good. And in verse 22, who in his inner being delights in God's law. But he cannot fulfill the requirements of the law as long as he inhabits his mortal body. But the emphasis is on the law and the law alone. And the result is defeat and despair. Because of the vivid and intense way in which Paul has presented his thoughts at the end of chapter 7, contrast with chapter 8 could not be more dramatic. Verses 14 to 25 of chapter 7 are a kind of spiritual wasteland. They are devoid of the spirit. Chapter 8, on the other hand, is absolutely full of the spirit. And in chapter 8, the emphasis moves from living in the light of the law to living in the light of the gospel and the law of the spirit of life, setting Paul free from the law of sin and death. And that's in chapter 8 that we will spend, God willing, the next four weeks. But in conclusion, J.I. Packer has an excellent illustration. Think of the Christian's personal life as a house with different aspects. Romans 7 depicts the cold, shadowed side that faces away from the sun. Romans 8 shows us the warm side where the sunshine is seen and felt. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity to explore your word. And we thank you that in that word, we find out about your law and the requirements expected of us. We are taught our own inability to meet those requirements. But we thank you through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who fulfilled the requirements of the law. That righteousness is imputed to us. And for that, Father, we give you thanks.